0: We're going to be looking in our passage in Luke 9 uh, both this morning and continuing it into uh, this evening. We'll continue on uh, in our passage from verse 50 onwards. Um, Luke 9 is a a wonderful chapter uh, in the book of Luke and in the Bible in general, and it's got a tremendous challenge to us as to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I have been crushed many times over reading Luke 9, looking at what it means to be a disciple and wondering if I'm just playing at being a Christian or if I'm really following Christ for all that I have for me. To link us in to what I think is going to be this morning, what I know is going to be this morning's topic and what I think is a major issue for all of us as Christians. I wonder if there is a discussion that comes up a lot in your house or in your work. In my years of ministry coming on to six years, which will be a lot to some and not much to others, I have learned that communication is something that comes up time and time again. And rather than think I will ever solve it, I've come to terms with those dreaded words that people say to me, nobody told me. There are welcome sheets that nobody reads, Facebook posts that fall to the bottom of your news feeds and emails that you don't receive anymore because you didn't tick that GDPR link. No matter how much time we put into communication again and again in discussions with our church, someone always feels left out on something they wished they had been told. I've come to terms over much pain and misery with this idea that we just have an optimal level when it comes to communication. I don't know what that number would be, let's say it's maybe 80% engagement. You do well to maintain that level of engagement and you just accept the fact that you'll never quite get to 100%. The problem is, you do need to keep working at it. Because if you don't keep working at it, its natural inclination is to diminish, is to get worse. Websites won't get visited regularly if they aren't updated regularly. People start talking about the next new thing and events become regular slots instead of exciting new projects. It might be that Hamilton Baptist is different, that you are perfect in communication, in which case you should be doing seminars to teach other people like me how to do it so well. But I suspect that you have the same problem that every other church I've ever met has had. What makes it so frustrating as a minister is that you really don't want to be talking about communication unless you're using it as a sermon illustration like I am. But you ignore it at your own peril. It falls apart if you do nothing about it. Or if you don't pay attention, you're guaranteed to have a problem that probably needs twice as much work later down the line. This morning, I think our topic is a little like that. It comes up so often in the Bible that it tells us that it's something that needs our attention. It happens before Christ was born. It happens to those who directly follow Christ, and it continues in Christ's church after his death and resurrection. It's something that needs continually worked on until Christ returns. We have to fight continually to keep its effectiveness at its optimal level. And like communication, its default is to disappear and to diminish if we don't pay it any attention. This means that we have to keep it at the forefront of our minds in order to maintain its effectiveness and to reflect the gospel to ourselves, to our brothers and sisters and those in the world. What is this exciting value? What is this necessary characteristic? It is humility. And the battle with its opposition, which is pride. Pride shows itself at the very beginning to be a driver for the fall of Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, 4 tells us that Satan tempted Eve and Adam, who was with her, by saying, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Pride connected the temptation, offering a chance to be like God. Despite the fact that they were already made in God's image, which in a deep way already made them like God, based on God, created with his perfection. Yet as they were offered something which they did not have, something Satan tried to make it sound like God had kept from them like a secret, rather than than keeping them protected like he was, they lacked the humility to trust God and wanted for themselves to be greater than they already were. However, pride remained a destructive power even after the fall. Much later, the nation of Israel is split. It's predicted in 1 Kings chapter 11 as God is reminded, uh, well, God reminds them of his sovereignty in the time of chaos by predicting it going to happen. And in the next chapter, into chapter 12, Jeroboam, who would shortly become king of the ten tribes, splitting away from Israel, approached Rehoboam, who was the son of Solomon and would shortly remain king only of Judah and then Benjamin. Jeroboam asks, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten this harsh labour and this heavy yoke he put on us, and we'll serve you. We're told that the elders took Rehoboam aside and said, If today you will be a servant to these people, and serve them, and give them a favourable answer, they will always be your servants young man told Rehoboam to say, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Make it ever heavier. And so Rehoboam split the nation of Israel by telling the people, My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Rehoboam had the opportunity to show humility to the nation who inherited this new king. But instead he wanted to show how much stronger he was than his father. And so doing he tore the nation in two as only the fourth king in a united Israel. Yet still we cannot claim that this is only an Old Testament problem. We can't pretend that it's something that happened then but doesn't bother in the time for Jesus. Matthew 20 tells us that James and John's mum approaches Jesus asking, Grant that one of these sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other on your left at your kingdom. She wanted to secure her sons the place of honour when Jesus became king. She wanted to secure them, and probably at the request of James and John, so that they would be recognised as Jesus was recognised in his glory as king. Yet still, once Jesus died and rose again, the problem continued. Finally, the issue had not been fixed by the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower the church. James speaks of a situation that he must have had reported to him when he asks, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes comes in. If You show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit down there at my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James recognised that pride had allowed people to have a hierarchy in the church where wealth and titles had influenced people standing in the church instead of united by the fact that we all fall short of the glory of God and all have been saved only through faith in Jesus Christ. What does all this mean? It means that if such a prevalent issue is addressed so many times in the Bible and I could have spent much longer probably going through almost every page in the Bible then it's certainly an issue for us this morning. And as we grapple with the word of God, we must accept that this is an issue that we're going to naturally struggle against. And if we don't struggle against it, our natural inclination is not to become more humble, but will be to become more proud. So with that said, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 9. Beginning at verse 46. We're going to read to verse 50, but I'm, I'm actually going to stop the sermon at 48 because my notes got way too big. And uh, I know how painful it can be to hold you for about four hours. So I'll only hold you for three. Luke chapter 9, 46. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Master said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. Because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Amen. God's word to us this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your beautiful scripture given to us time and time again to teach us, to help us grow, to rebuke us when we rebel against you. Lord, we pray that your word would just reach into our hearts and into our minds, that what you want to say to us would be heard, Lord. We just pray that we would... um, By your spirit, be able to listen and apply these things into our lives. For Lord, it's all about you. And we desire to follow after you. In your name we ask and pray. Amen. So we need to understand why Luke 9 is where it is. Up to this point, the disciples have been called to follow Jesus in chapter 5. An invitation which they accept. And Jesus begins to teach them, showing them his power. He explains the values and reality of God's kingdom as opposed to the broken values and false realities of the earthly kingdom. He backs up this power by his authority. His authority over demons, like the demon-possessed man in Galilee. His authority over human diseases, like the man who had leprosy. And his authority over death, raising the dead girl to life in the chapter before this chapter, this morning, chapter 8. But something has began to change in chapter 9 and in Luke it's very intentional about there's three sections um, which go and this is us moving from section 1 to section 2 when Jesus begins to head to Jerusalem. The third section is him in Jerusalem and his death and resurrection. We begin to see here the disciples being given authority by Jesus to go and teach what Jesus had taught and heal those who needed healing. In verse 1 of this chapter, we're told that when Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases and to send them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Having seen Jesus do all these wonderful things, they began to also do wonderful things. Having watched as crowds were amazed at the power and authority which Jesus held, suddenly, crowds were amazed at the power and authority. That they held. As people came from towns and villages begging Jesus for help in total helplessness. Now the disciples were the ones bringing hope to those who had given up on the doctors. Or given up on going to the temple. Or given up of ever seeing change in their lives. The disciples were beginning to experience the power of their position as disciples of Jesus. In the same chapter three disciples are chosen to go with Jesus. Just as in chapter 5 all the disciples are gathered around Jesus and 12 are chosen amongst that group. Here amongst the 12, Peter, James and John are called out and chosen to join Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They see Jesus glowing as his clothes became like a flash of lightning. Jesus has a conversation with Moses and Elijah. Probably one of the coolest things just to... Comment on naturally in the Gospel of Luke. Yeah, he went up the hill and he had a little chat with Moses and Elijah, chatting through the law and how things were coming and how he was getting on with his plan and following the Father. Understandable why Peter thought we should maybe raise three altars here to worship him. However, let's see it from a different disciples. We're told that the disciples, meaning Peter, James and John, decided not to speak about this and kept it to themselves. Can you just imagine the picture? Now remember, Andrew is the brother of Peter. Andrew's the one that invited Peter to come and see the Messiah. And from that, the two of them went on to follow Jesus. If you've got siblings, you'll understand the frustration of this. Peter goes up the hill. Peter comes down the hill. Andrew says, what happened up the hill? Peter says, nothing. Nothing. Andrew says, well, why did you three have to go up the hill? Peter says, doesn't matter. Could you imagine, as a brother, thinking, you're just holding that back from me. It made me think a little bit of when I was in school, you know, in primary school. I know something you don't know. There's this sense of, why is Peter, James and John special enough to go up that hill? But the other nine who were chosen amongst the whole crowd before to follow Jesus as one of the twelve isn't chosen I think when you begin to see these things happening you begin to see them with power and authority you begin to see them being chosen at certain times and even more chosen from the chosen we begin to understand why there were some problems developing amongst the disciples i don't think it's surprising certainly not surprising to me i've got two brothers i know exactly what's going on here when we come to verse 46 and it says an argument started amongst the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest In fact, maybe we'd be surprised if it didn't say that an argument cracked out amongst them because of who was the greatest. This argument doesn't happen around Jesus. I don't think most of them want to hear the definitive answer from Jesus. They just want to prove their greatness to the other disciples. There's a deep set of truth in our hardened hearts about this. When we feel offended by someone, we often don't go to the person to get the facts or to deal with the issue or to explain what happened. Instead, we go to other people to get their agreement that that person's terrible. That's the natural way we do things. It's a reminder to us, as Jeremiah 17.9 says, that our heart is deceitful above all things. Who can cure it? Of course, the answer is only Christ can cure it, but the reality is our heart is deceitful. We don't want to deal with issues. We want to feed our pride. By knowing that we're better than others. And we get other people involved to do that. The issue of the disciples was that they wanted to argue their greatness to the other disciples. One disciple probably argued how they cast out multiple demons in one town. The other, how many came to follow Jesus after his fantastic sermon. Another, how they got more answers right when Jesus asks questions. This might be the end of the petty little argument. Or... Maybe the continuation that would have carried on going for the whole Jerusalem travel. But there's a problem for these guys. They're disciples of Christ. We're told in verse 47, Jesus knowing their thoughts. It's kind of a sad reality here. That Jesus is beginning to think more and more about his death. The closer it comes, the more anguish and fear builds up in his mind. We're told that just before he's arrested, he was sweating blood. He was so afraid. And as these thoughts come into him about how he will be humiliated, how weak he will be made to look even weakness unto death, as he grapples with these thoughts, he also has to listen to the thoughts and conversations of his disciples as to who is the greatest. Who will be recognised the most? Who will be right next to Jesus in his glory? What a tragedy that Jesus not only has to deal with the greed of the religious leaders and the Roman rulers, but also his very own friends and followers. Luke here is reminding us the importance of good theology. When it comes to Jesus, Jesus is not like any other man. It's easy to see the humility of Jesus as weakness. Certainly at the time when they met Jesus, that's how they viewed him. He, his love and unwillingness to force himself over Herod or Pilate makes people think that Jesus is a friendly guy. And if he does really exist, well, everything will be okay because he's nice to them. And so they can spend their whole life ignoring Jesus. And if he exists, it'll all be okay. It neglects that this man is the one who was present at the beginning of the world, through whom, through his Father, everything was created. John 1 tells us without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. This man, Jesus, is fully God and fully man. He is the fullness of God in the flesh. He therefore knows the thoughts of his disciples. Notice it doesn't say that he knows their conversation. No, Jesus knows our thoughts. You can hide many secrets from your spouse, from your family, from your friends, from your work colleagues. But you cannot hide your thoughts from God. And this is an encouraging point as well as a challenging point to us. I would remind us that Jesus knew the thoughts of his disciples and all the Pharisees and every person who existed at the time and would exist and had existed all at one time. Nothing is impossible for God. He knew our depravity. He knew how sinful we would be today. Jesus still died on the cross to offer us a chance of forgiveness from the wrath of God's righteousness against our own sinfulness. He died so that he could live life, so we could live life to the fullest and the glory of God and enjoy him forever. And that's a huge encouragement. The fact that God knows our conversations and he knows everything that we think and do and he still says, I'm willing to come into the world, even if you were the only person that existed in the world, I would die for you. At no point does Jesus say, right, that's the line. I'm out of this. Forget it. Contracts null and void. Cancel. Abort, take it back. He knows everything. He knows you better than you know yourself. And still, he loves you to come into this world. However, there's also another side of this, as well as the encouragement that we take from this. It's not good enough to think whatever we want without preaching the gospel to our thoughts. Rebuking our thoughts when we become jealous or angry or bitter in our thoughts. Nothing can be hidden from Jesus and nothing is removed from Christ's authority and remit. Nothing is out of bounds for Jesus, including our thoughts. All of this must be brought into account, into subdue, into renewing of our mind, not just our actions. So, how does Jesus deal with the disciples? He needs something to send a, a clear message and we need a clear message this morning to something that helps them see where they are going wrong and what example they need to follow to keep them from constant challenge of pride in the future verse 47 tells us he took a little child and had him beside him why was this child entered into a discussion about greatness this child does not yet have a job yet to raise a family yet to contribute to society Children, if you really think about it, and I'm not meaning to be this harsh, but they're a bit of a burden on society. It makes me sound like Scrooge, I know, but it'll get better as I explain it. If you think about it, there's some truth to this. Bringing a child up is really to give your time, wealth and energy so that the child can go on to become an independent person who will then all go on to spend their time, wealth and energy on another family. It wouldn't really be a particularly attractive investment to the dragon's den, would it? Would you like the pain of nine months developing this child to then have it scream for your attention at least every four hours to begin with, depending on on you to clean and clothe and feed and entertain them? Of course, I do love children and they bring joy into the world and being a massive kid myself, I get much of the joy just entertaining a child. and It's great having a nephew that I have who's three because you can just hand him back when he gets annoying. And That's the real joy of children for me. It's time to go back to mum. Um, in primary school, we, uh, where I'm a chaplain, particularly we talk about this preparation for adulthood, education with the desire to see them contribute to society when they are growing up. And it's therefore a child with nothing to claim for itself. That has stood in the middle of the disciples. A child that is just doing what he's told by Jesus. A child that probably isn't sure what's going on. And a child that everyone has forgotten about. It's ironic or, or right or appropriate that we don't really know the name of this child. We don't know anything about him. We don't know anything after this or before this event. The child is insignificant in this Story in this event that's been told by Luke. Jesus says in verse 48, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Here Jesus is making a point about the application of humility. Humility welcomes those who have nothing to offer. Because humility reflects that we have nothing from ourselves. Listen to this from Luke 14. When you have a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I read a passage like that in Luke and I think, what does it mean to be a Christian? Have I got some of these things wrong? Is there a sense where following Jesus is so far apart from what I've made following Jesus About. Isn't that an incredibly challenging passage? Have you ever invited someone to your home who could not repay you? See, the gospel is not just logical, it is radical. Jesus turns up the heat with his call to humility and says, It's time to get radical about Jesus Christ. See, Jesus has shown us, firstly, the gospel in action for our lives. Jesus came into the world and we were like the poor, crippled, blind person who had nothing to offer at this banquet. Not only did Jesus invite us to the banquet, but he did so knowing it would be costly to him and we would never be able to repay him even slightly. But if we begin to understand that, it causes us to live differently. Sometimes being a follower of Christ can be hard. There are scenarios in my life where I wish I could not be a Christian so that I wouldn't have to apologise when I have a major falling out with someone. But I know I have to deal with it because Christ held back nothing from me. So I've got no excuse to hold up back anything from him. It's a call to be radically different and live radically different. But even in those hardest times, I could not imagine my life without Jesus. I've just experienced too much of his goodness and his greatness and his faithfulness and I have tasted his glory in small insignificant ways. And once you've tasted God's glory, it's impossible not to want to see more and more of it. I'd rather go through hard times and humiliating times when I have to go and apologise for things that I've done that I wish I could just be right about. Even when I know it's not what I want than to ever think of walking away from him. Experiencing the the banquet is life transforming. Knowing you're a beggar, seeing your sinfulness and the hatred in your heart, then experiencing the grace of eating at the king's table is truly transforming. But humility says that you cannot just enjoy eating at the king's table. You need to go out and be like the king. This is the meaning of discipleship. Living your life in a way that Jesus would if he were you. Reflecting God's goodness into others. So here's a good question to check your humility. When's the last time you did something for someone who could not repay it? If it's been a while, maybe that's worth just going away and taking time to pray about Maybe reflect on Luke 14. And secondly to this, humility is about recognising that Christ is best. There are many things that scriptures call us to that's radical in our society. Keeping sex within the context of marriage. Marriage is a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. Refusing to gossip about the latest information on someone. Not being greedy in our businesses. Dealing with bad relationships in order that unity may be the fruit of our faith. So often we don't want to miss out or go through the pain of facing these issues. But that's the difference between being a follower of Christ and being a fan of Christ. A follower follows. A fan watches from the sidelines and cheers Jesus on. Yeah, Jesus, you keep going with your jesus stuff. And I'll support you from the sidelines, but don't ask me to get involved. Don't ask me to come down there and be part of it. A follower says, I'm going to keep to your heels as close as I can and follow you wherever you go. We're told in verse 48 that when we do this, we not only welcome those who otherwise would be ignored. We not only reflect Christ in our lives, but we also welcome him who sent Christ. To act in this humble way is to welcome God the Father. If I'd opened up this morning by saying, hey, would you like an opportunity to welcome God the Father? I hope that many of us would say, absolutely, how can I do that? Well, Jesus says, hey, if you welcome those who are to be ignored in society, you welcome me. And if you welcome me, you welcome my Father. What a beautiful picture for us. And then verse 48 finishes by saying, For he who is least among you all, he or she is the greatest. The child is the perfect example of this upside down, or maybe better put, right way up kingdom, which Jesus brought with him. Why was the child stood before disciples to explain the greatness of the least? I told you before that children don't really contribute to society. But the great reality is they don't have to. A child does not exist to work, to invent or to teach. A child is helpless. Without their parents or a guardian, they cannot exist. Even Tarzan needed animals in the jungle to bring him up when he didn't have any parents. And yeah, no, Tarzan's not a real person. Don't worry. What we need to realise is that we are children. We are helpless. Since that fateful moment when Adam and Eve were tempted to be like God... So also we've been the same, wanting to take God's place over our life and unable to escape our corrupted hearts. It's vital that we do not play this down. Humanity is deprived, fallen, and without the Holy Spirit's intervention and regeneration, we have no hope of living a life whatsoever near to how God intended us. We have to see ourselves as helpless children before a loving Heavenly Father who comes to adopt us, from the misery of our lives without him and our hopelessness of hell without his intervention. And if I was to downplay that this morning, I would be downplaying the work of Christ and what he achieved, and I refuse to do that. And this is the second part of our childlike reality, that we are totally dependent on God. Every parent and mother in particular knows what it's like to have a child so hopelessly dependent on them. You cannot give a banana to a child without first cutting it up or mushing it up if they're even younger there's a patheticness to the child's needs jesus stands a child among the disciples and says look this is you before god you think you're anything else you're deluded and in a practical sense god is not only creator but the sustainer of the world every breath is a gift from God. And in a deeper sense, our salvation, our identity, our life is found in God the Father. We love because he first loved us. We forgive because he first forgave us and then gave us the power to forgive. Both being forgiven and being able to forgive can only be done thanks to our total dependence on God. Many don't appreciate what gives. They don't appreciate his creation, clearly given to men and women in Genesis to subdue and care for and enjoy. Even more, don't appreciate the need we have to be rooted in him and his power. But it's a dependence that creates humility. Without it, we begin to think that we have all these things because we're great. Because we achieved them. Because we earned them. See, like the disciples, we begin to maybe heal the sick and cast out demons and preach the kingdom. again begin to think that God chose us because we were so good at it. Those of us chosen are chosen despite our weakness because of God's greatness. Even the things that we're naturally good at are gifts from God. See, humility is a core value of the kingdom of God. Jesus came as a servant, yet we don't often spend much time thinking about humility and applying it to all aspects of our lives. When I was a teenager, I used to work for a kayak and canoe company and I was awful at it. I don't know how. I mainly worked in the shop selling stuff because I couldn't actually kayak much at all. But one day, they, they took me out uh, to to kayak. And as we went down a, a river, I don't know if you know anything about kayaking, and there's no reason to, because there's no reason to. But beyond paddling, I couldn't do anything. So the first thing you're meant to learn is how to roll yourself back up. I couldn't even do that. I was so useless at it. And uh, mostly, I worked in places where you could just say, stand up if someone fell in so that I didn't have to go and fall in the water myself and rescue them. But one day in a river, I fell in and no matter how many times I just got out of the kayak, I can't flip it, so I just got out and said goodbye to the kayak down the river and decided I would float the same way. And I thought, I'll stand up. And every time I tried to stand up, the river just pushed me straight back down. And the only way I could stop going down this river at a decent pace was to pull myself out of the river and just pull myself up and away. I was thinking about this for ourselves. The only way... That so often we come to God's kingdom and accept Christ's humility we love the fact that he humbled himself to a mere man that though he was in creation and created all things he was killed by his own creation that though he is in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even a humiliating death on the cross. Though he could have called down an army to save him, he didn't. Folks, if you believe that you can take all that Jesus offers and remain proud, then you are as foolish as I was trying to push against the current of a river, thinking that somehow I could get my footing in a river as tons of water pushed against me. You end up with a choice. Either you're going to have to pull yourself out of this river and be spat out like a lukewarm Christian, or you accept the current of the river's humility and you ride down that lock recognising that it's Jesus' way or no way. Accepting the power of God through our weakness as he proved his power through weakness on the cross. Pride is horrible because it creeps in so easily and can be so hard to spot in our lives. My last point, and I promise my last point, as much as I'd love to keep preaching on this, and I think there's much depth more to be unpacked, and I'll try and do some of that tonight. I want to give you some help to try and spot pride and fight it. Instead of fighting against God and try to pull yourself out of that river, how do we accept God and go down that river. Well Augustine a saint from the early church he wrote a book called Confessions and in this book he speaks about the heart of the matter at least that's what I kind of call it and he speaks about a time when someone murdered their neighbour and he says why? It's not enough just to say that was wrong but why did the neighbour do it? Why did he kill his neighbour? Was it because he was jealous of his neighbor's wife? Was it because he was offended by his neighbour and had been insulted and wanted to get back at his neighbour? And he says, you've got to get to the heart of the matter. You've got to explore why you behave in the way you do. Because as you explore your heart, you'll discover the idols that you hold in your heart. The things that you hold that are more important than God. So that when they're offended, when they're wronged, you'll rise up and fight against that. So next time you lose your temper, ask yourself, why am I losing my temper? Next time you're bitter against somebody for saying something against you, don't be angry at the person. Turn it on yourself and say, well, why is it annoying me so much? Why is it not sufficient that I know who I am in Christ, that I don't need to care about what this person says about me? Instead of getting upset. I have an example of that, but I'm just going to stop because we're going over, but there's a sense of needing to explore our own heart's desires. Our anger and our frustration and our offence against other people is a good indicator of where we need to work on our heart matters. The call to humility is the constant call to a follower of Christ, walking in the ways he exampled and experiencing the gospel life that Christ gave to his disciples and continually gives to us today. The temptation always is to be a fan. Shouting with encouragement. It wasn't it great when Jesus did that. Keep going, Jesus. I admire what you did. But the challenge for us is to be a follower. To look in our own hearts and make sure our pride is in check. To check ourselves. That we don't lose our optimal level of humility and go back to our default. Which is always pride. Putting ourselves first self-interest that's a call to be a follower and not a fan let's pray together Heavenly Father we thank you for your word we thank you for the challenge of humility Lord we thank you that the disciples are an example to us that if even the disciples who were directly following you could make these kind of mistakes Lord you were gracious to them but very direct about their need to see that the least is the greatest Heavenly Father for the times in our lives when we hold back things from you when we have our pride when we want to be in control of aspects of our lives when we look down on others Lord help us to see those areas in our lives that we might push them out so that our strength and our identity and our foundation is fully in you and Lord there's no space for you to share in our hearts Lord you know our thoughts our conversations, our actions guide us to be faithful to you in all that we do for no area of our life is off-limit to you in your name we ask and pray amen